welcome to Dads with Daughters. In this show, we spotlight dads, resources, and more to help you be the best dad you can be. Welcome back to the Dads with Daughters podcast, where we bring you guests to be active participants in your daughters' lives, raising them to be strong, independent women. I love talking to you every week about things that you can do to be able to engage with your daughters in different ways, be able to find new ways to support your daughters. And I try to bring you guests that are having different experiences. And today we're going to be having another great guest. Robert Farrington is with us. And Robert is a father of two. He, we're going to talk about his own journey in being a father to a daughter. But we're also going to tap into his expertise because he is also known as the millennial money expert and knows a ton about college investments. So we're going to be talking specifically, I want to, I, I told them this coming into this, that one of the things, and it's a little self-serving for me, but I want to talk about paying for college because as you know, I have two daughters. I've got a 17 and a 14-year-old, but my 17-year-old is a rising senior in high school. So we're looking at colleges right now. We're, to, we're determining how we can potentially get her to be able to go to the schools that she wants to go to, as some of you may be either getting ready to do right now or thinking about doing in the next few years, or you might have that baby at home and maybe you're like, oh boy, I really need to start. I need to start soon and thinking about this. But we're going to be talking about that today as well. Robert, thanks so much for being here today. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to have this conversation. Well, I'm excited to have you here as well. And first, as I always start these shows, I turn the clock back in time. And I know your daughter is five, so we're going to turn the clock back maybe a little past five years. So we're going to, I, I want you to go back to that first moment, that first moment when you found out that you were going to be a father to a daughter. What was going through your head? Oh man, this was a crazy story. So we didn't know we were having a daughter, right? She was a surprise in the delivery room and she came to us in 48 minutes, start to finish. <laughs> We made it to the hospital with about six minutes to spare and almost had a baby in the hallway. And that has been the story of my daughter. So she popped out and we were like, hello, welcome to the world. That was a crazy experience. And uh, it has been an amazing experience since. But it was a shock. It was an adventure. And man, it was quite the experience. I'll tell you that. <laughs> I can only imagine. My my both of my daughters were very different in the delivery with them. Our first daughter decided to take pretty much all day into the evening and then became an emergency C-section. So, and then our second daughter ended up being a, a C-section, but we that was planned. We kind of knew when she was coming. So, very different. As I said at the beginning, everybody's experience is just a, a little bit different in, in that regard from from start to as they grow up. So so I talk to a lot of fathers and many fathers talk about fear, some fear in raising daughters in today's society. Sometimes it's fear just because it's that unknown and not knowing the female experience as we know our own experience as men. What would you say was your biggest fear or has been your biggest fear in raising a daughter in today's society? Yeah, I mean, honestly, it's, am I doing enough to empower her to know everything that I can teach her about just skills? So, you know, I am a big believer in exposing our kids to as much as we possibly can. And I want to teach her all the skills that she wants 
And they might not be my skills. And that's kind of my big fear, right? Like I want her to explore and understand and do different things. And I've never had a daughter. I didn't grow up with sisters. I don't know what that is. And so one of my fears is how can I um, foster whatever that spark is that she wants to explore and do and understand and learn about and experience. And you know, and so it's really been fun because on one side, she likes to do a lot of things that I like, but then I'm not, am I always wondering, am I imposing myself <laughs> so much on her and not exposing her to other things? And so that's always a fear. It's always a battle. It's always fun because we're trying different things, doing different things. Um, and I can't wait to see that continue to emerge in the future. Through the years, your daughter's personality is going to continue to develop. But what I found is the personality they have as a young child tends to be the same personality that that they tend to have as they get a bit older and into now for me, my the teenage years. There is that period, though, that in that early to mid-teen years where there's some challenges, you know, that you run through, but but the personality persists and, and definitely you see it from an early age. So that makes it kind of fun along the way. Now, as you look at the relationship that, that you have with your daughter, every father has different ways to be able to capture those experiences and those opportunities to be able to bond. What would you say has been the most memorable experience that you and your daughter's been able to share together? Wow. You know, I just love the one-on-one time that we get. So I am blessed that I work from home. And I think for a lot of people, COVID last two years has been challenging, but working from home already, it wasn't a big transition for us. And so when our daughter was home from preschool, as a result of everything shutting down, you know, we were able to spend so much time together and just having like just a lot of time, like, don't get me wrong, very stressful at times, very stressful at times. But on the flip side, I look back on it now, kind of past that moment. And I'm like, wow, that was just amazing. Like, I don't think I just don't want to take for granted the fact that I got to spend basically a whole year with her growing up. And we're not a homeschool family, so it's not something that we've been accustomed to. It's not something that we've usually had. But, you know, it was a really great experience to have her and be a part of her day every day, learning, doing things that we wouldn't normally do as a family, I guess, is really what it comes down to, especially on the educational front, right? We usually drop them off at school. See you, pick you up at, you know, 3.30, whatever it happens to be. And having that time together to learn and teach her and watch her understand things like that I would not normally have seen. It's been a blessing for sure. Now, I talked about at the very beginning that you have been, you've been come to be known as a money expert in what you do, in the work that you do with individuals, the millennial money expert. And I'm putting quotes up for everyone here. And one of the things that I really wanted to talk to you about today is delving into financing of college and being able to identify and figure out how are you going to pay for college? There's a lot of different ways that this conversation, I think, could go because you could talk about it from, as I said at the beginning, thinking about the the person that is just having their baby in their arms and they're saying, I've got to figure this out because my kid's going to be a senior in high school before I know it and I need to have some something there. But then there's people like myself that are in a very different place. I think I want to focus a little bit on for those individuals that are 
looking at, I'm going to say the finish line of high school, that light at the end of the tunnel that is like rushing at them, and that's college or post high school, and they're looking at the price tags that the colleges are throwing at them, and they're saying, OMG, how the heck am I supposed to pay for that? And some individuals have been able to save some money along the way. Some have not. And, and I guess let's, let's start with a, a kind of a basic conversation as we look at individuals that are looking at this, that let's say they're entering their senior year of high school and they're doing that search. They're looking at the price tags of these colleges. What is one of the biggest myths that you see that people get concerned about or get uh, held up on when they're looking at those price tags, first and foremost? Well, yeah, I mean, I think there's just so many myths about this. And I think the hard part is that, I even wanna take it back a step, is do you need to go to this four-year school? I think that's a big myth because the four-year price tag is also the biggest price tag of all the college choices, right? And there might be a variety of ways to pay for that and lower that, but there's also community college, vocational school, different other ways to further your education. And maybe four-year college is the finish line. Maybe you transfer, maybe you do that. Maybe you don't, maybe you take a different path. But I do think we're at this weird inflection point in, in American society today where for the last about 15 to 20 years, the pendulum had swung full bore that every single high school senior needs to go to college, a four-year college per se. And I want to say over the last five to seven years with the student loan debt crisis and a lot of what's going on in our economy, the pendulum is starting to swing inward a little bit more. It's saying like, well, you know, I don't know if every high school senior needs to go to a four-year college. Maybe there's other ways that we can educate and advance them to get into whatever career field that they want to get into. And then you look at the economics of the job market today and becoming a plumber or electrician or going into the trades is a high demand profession. And we've kind of neglected training and educating those individuals over the last 20 years. So before I even get into the whole price of you pay for a four-year college, I always like to have this myth of, hey, you know, there's a lot of paths when you are a high school senior and maybe jumping right to the four-year college is the right path for you. And I think it is for the majority of high school seniors. I don't want to say that no one needs to go to college. <laughs> you know, it definitely is a great path, but I would actually pin it about 60-40, that about 60% of high school seniors should be looking at that four-year path. And the other 40 should look at alternative paths, whether that's community college, which when we talk about the price tag is free in about half of the states, right? So that's that's a great price, right? And then you have vocational schools that are very reasonably priced. And if you go into certain vocations, employers and unions might pay for that vocational school for you. And then you have all the other things, the military, you have going right into the workforce, even a gap year. I don't know about you, but when I was 17, I didn't know what I wanted to do. <laughs> And so maybe just spending a little bit more time figuring yourself out is a great way to make the paying for college decision just a little bit sounder, a little smarter, a little more understanding. Because I always like to think about it as an investment. It is an investment in yourself and your future. And 
it also costs money just like any other investment. And so you want to make it a good one. You want to make it pay off. And you know, that can be hard to do when you're a young adult with all the pressures of your family and your community and you know, your own aspirations. And there's a lot of tugging going on inside those 17-year-old, 18-year-old hearts and minds. There definitely are. And, and I would echo what you're saying. As you know, I work in higher education and I've worked in college admission for many, many years. And I've worked uh, in two-year college education, four-year college education, graduate education. So I've worked in a lot of different aspects. I would agree with you that not every student should start at a four-year institution or needs to start at a four-year institution. There are, as you said, many paths that can lead you to that end goal. And to be blunt, the education that you can get at a two-year institution can sometimes rival what you're going to get at a four-year for those basic general education courses. And you can save a lot of money going into that. Now, that being said, not every student is going to be willing to even consider it because there is still a stigma to attending a community college, which is unfounded. And I will stake my own reputation on that because I have seen it firsthand and I have worked with these faculty members and seen these faculty members engaging with the students and know that the experience that a student's going to have in the classroom is great. However, the one thing that is different is the college experience is vastly different. So a student that is transferring into a four-year institution later will have to work harder at building that college experience, and I'm putting quotes up against around college experience, because of the fact that they're not there for all four years, and they haven't found that friend group right away that you get bonded with coming in during freshman orientation, living in a residence hall, you know, doing all of those traditional things that you typically do when you go to a four-year institution from day one. So those are just some things to think about that you have to think about along the way. No, you're spot on. And that's, you know, that social connection, I think, is definitely not the same. But the price tag is very different, too. And I think it's hard because there's so many aspects to juggle. But I also say the data supports exactly what you said is the community college two-year transfer student that goes to a four-year school has the highest graduation rate of any cohort of graduates. Because usually if you've gone on that path and you've done the work, you're going to make it through and you're going to be successful. So, you know, don't dismiss it. And that, that's honestly where I like to start because then we can talk about the, the nitty gritty of the finances because, man, there is some sticker shock. But I do think that it's interesting because college is also that like one of the few items that we pay for in our society where you know there's people that are paying full price and you also know there's people paying zero and there's people paying every dollar amount in between for the same product. So, you know, there's a lot of variation in what you pay, how you pay and what that all looks like. So I guess let's jump there. For someone that has made the decision to look at a four-year institution right away, because the price of a community college is just so vastly different. And it's typically going to be subsidized by the state and by the counties that they're in. So that being said, a lot of times the cost that you're paying is going to be very much less. 
So even in my own community, I have a community college here that is less than $100 a credit hour, right next to a major Division I institution that you're paying probably four to $500 a credit hour. Is the education the same? Is it different? That's up to anyone to, to, to determine for themselves. But that being said, there is going to be that difference. So let's set aside the community college at this point, because I think that we all can agree that the price there is definitely reasonable and definitely going to be more reasonable than looking at the four-year. And a lot of times when you look at sticker shock, the sticker shock, when I talk to parents, is mostly at the four-year level because of that. So at the four-year level, there's a difference between public and private in the sense of what you're going to see. But what should a parent and a student first be looking at when they are going in and they're seeing that sticker of this is what it's going to cost to attend our institution? I always like to view the paying for college thing as a giant pie. And there's a ton of slices of how you're going to pay for that price. And the pie slice can be a big price or it could be a little price. And, you know, there's a lot of variations on how you can adjust the price. So I'm sure we've, you know this and do it, but fill out the federal free application for federal student aid, the FAFSA, which if you have an, a, a rising senior, you're going to be doing that. And that is your ticket to federal student aid, which is also your ticket for all these colleges, financial aid offices to start doing all their calculations on what your net price of school is going to be. Are they going to able to offer you any kinds of grants, scholarships, things like that? But then you have this whole pie of slices that you got to pay for that, that pie, right? So I always like to start with scholarships and grants, free money that your student might be eligible for, especially if you're in high school right now. So for the parents of high schoolers, your student start looking for scholarships, especially merit-based ones, not the need-based ones. The merit-based ones are the ones that are out there that ask you to a tell us an essay or do some community service or do something in your community. And there are billions and billions of dollars out there in these scholarships. And they are significantly underapplied to, and they are a great source of free money that you can use to pay for college. It's work. It's not going to come. Oh, it's not easy. You usually got to spend some time to find them. You got to spend some time to apply to them and then, you know, cross your fingers. But it's also a game of expected value. You know, if you only apply to one or two, yeah, you might not get them. But if you can get up to 10, you're probably going to get one. <laughs> and if you can keep adding more and more, you can continue to raise the amount of scholarship money that you're able to get. So, Start with the free money. Then I think you have your own savings. Maybe you did start saving for college when your child was little. So the parents might have savings. Maybe the student has savings. Maybe, you know, grandma gave them $100 every birthday <laughs> and they started putting that into a savings account and that's grown. So, you know, there might be some savings there. I think a lot of people also don't remember that they're going to have earnings. So parents are still typically working when their kids are going to school. Ideally, your student is working and can pitch in with their earnings to pay for this, even if it's not for tuition, but maybe for books, board, food, all that kind of thing. Then you do have your student loans. We can get there. <laughs> Ideally, you want to borrow as little as possible, but they are an option. And of course, you do want to take out federal student loans 
private student loans should really be the last resort. Then you might have work study, other financial aid packages. There might be fellowships if you're going to graduate school, things like that. So there's a lot of slices of this pie. And I want families to try to maximize all the free money, the savings money, those pie slices, and then ideally minimize any student loans, things like that, that you have to take out when you're looking at this. So one of the things that I think some parents get a little bit confused about is that they will fill out the the FAFSA, but then there are other schools that will require additional forms that will delve even deeper into their financial ability to pay for school. And I've heard it. I know that there are concerns out there about people looking that deeply and find, looking for, it, it seems, that needle in the haystack of that last dollar that they have saved and pinched and scraped and, and, and such for. But can you talk a little bit about the differences in these forms that people are going to be seeing, especially as they look at private some of the private schools that are asking for additional documentation? Yeah, so the FAFSA is pretty universal for all pretty much any American school that accepts financial aid. The free application for federal student aid, it's a free form, fill it out online, takes your tax return. It definitely dives into your finances, but not as much as you were just mentioning. The competitor is the CSS profile. So it's the College Board's College Scholarship Service. I want to say about 200 colleges right now are using it. Might be a little more, a little less. I think a lot of them have changed in the pandemic of what they're looking for. But yes, this does dive deeper into your finances. And if you're looking at these private schools or selective schools, as they like to be known, you know, they might ask you for this. And the goal is to hopefully get you more aid. And if your child's heart's set on it, you know, it's like, I'm sorry, (laughs) you're going to have to do the work. But hopefully, you know, they're open to other schools as well. And realize that, like I said, it's only about 200 schools. And these are the highly selective private ones, usually most of the time. So as you're moving into this, I know you said that one of the things that you recommended right away would be finding scholarships. And first off, there is a question that I've heard before, which is, will receiving scholarship money negatively impact their financial aid package in the end? Potentially. And some states are actually outlawing this practice. I want to say Washington State just passed a bill that does not allow that to happen. Scholarships cannot offset your financial aid package, but some colleges and some states do allow that and they do. The one thing to think about though is if you have a one, free money is always free money. Yes, ideally you would get it from the university and a private scholarship, but don't dismiss it, right? Like I I wouldn't say don't pick up $20 on the ground just because like someone might take the $20 from you later. Like you were still ahead for a little bit and you still could be ahead because no one might come and claim the $20, right? Part two is if you are a high school freshman, sophomore, or junior, those scholarship monies are not going to potentially impact any of your financial aid calculations because they're just going to go into a savings account for you. And, you know, you're going to get that aid and you can start stockpiling that money earlier and then use it for your school. So the earlier you start, the less of a risk that that happens. Some states are outlawing the practice because the net price does exclude gift aid and they fiddle around with those numbers. But I would say in a lot of cases, you're still going to be much better off applying for the scholarships for sure. The other question that I think that I would ask is this, and this goes back to really looking at your EFC, 
which is your estimated family contribution. And there are a lot of concerns, a lot of questions about EFC. I know there's changes even coming this next year that will change some of the rules with EFC and what that gross income needs to be to be at that EFC, what we call EFC zero, meaning that you keep, you don't have to worry about the contribution in that regard. Now, that being said, though, when we're talking about your estimated family contribution, what does that actually mean? Because when you see that and you get something, because sometimes you can fill out some prep, some forms ahead of time that will say, we anticipate your EFC will be blank. And it might throw out and say, hey, you're going to have to pay $30,000. And that's your EFC. You, you might get some that say, nope, your EFC zero, meaning that you're not going to have to pay anything. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so EFC, expected family contribution, estimated family contribution, is the net result of your FAFSA calculation. So they take into consideration your child's assets, your assets. They do some math on them, which we don't have to dive into the details, but you can find it online. And then they come up with this magic number called the EFC that says, this is what you're expected as a family unit not just a child or a parent, a family unit to pay for college. And a lot of times the number is shockingly large <laughs> to families. And they're like, I don't make a lot of money and you want me to pay how much to school? And so honestly, it's kind of scary. But on the flip side, realize that most colleges and universities are not necessarily looking at that exact number and saying, okay, if your EFC is 30,000, well, that's your what you're going to pay. No, that still goes into the school's financial aid calculation to see if you qualify for any scholarships and grants. And then also, if there's any state grants in your state, it does vary based on what your EFC is. So a lot of states offer grants to lower income students and families and different things. And yes, if your EFC is zero, you probably qualify for a lot more. But the number doesn't have to be zero to pay zero. You can have a number that is larger or smaller and you can still get financial aid. It might not be as much as you'd want if your EFC is creeping up higher and higher and higher, but there's still opportunities for you there. And it's always important to remember that the FAFSA is what unlocks student loans. So if you were going to borrow federal student loans, you need to fill out the FAFSA every time. It's basically your student loan application as well as your financial aid application. I don't, one of my big pet peeves in this is that they bucket student loans into financial aid, <laughs> but they're, they're two separate, but you will get awarded your student loans in your financial aid package, which is still a misnomer. It is a misnomer and, and definitely something that that is challenging, I think, for a lot of people to understand. I did mention that there are some changes coming that people probably should be aware of over the next year to financial aid and, and what the federal government is going to be doing. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, they're changing the way that they're calculating some of the assets. So they're calling it FAFSA simplification, <laughs> which, again, another misnomer. <laughs> I don't know how simple you're making it, but it doesn't take effect until 2023, 2024. But as a result, you're using your income from this year 
because you're going to use this year's tax returns to file that future FAFSA. So in some ways, the changes are kind of taking effect now, but they're going to be reflected when you fill out the FAFSA in the future. Some of the big ones that I'm kind of interested in is that the 529 plans and college savings plans, you know, they're going to change the way that they're reported. So if it's a grandparent or non-parent owned 529 plan, for example, it doesn't count anymore on the FAFSA. And so there's ways to potentially save for college that will not impact your student aid. There's also a lot of changes in the income protection allowance and different formulas that they're changing in there and the asset values that they're going to, how much they're going to count in the asset values of the student and the parent. And so there's a lot of math and wonky changes going on in there that's coming. But for me, the big one is the 529 plans uh, not counting as much. So that's great. I know the one other thing that I had noticed was that the overall gross income was raising from 50,000 at the at the EFC0 to 60,000 at the EFC0 which will impact some and and definitely allow for some others to hit that EFC0 yeah, I'm I'm excited about that. I'm a little worried about that though too. It's it's almost barely keeping up with inflation these days. And so it's like I don't know if that same cohort of individuals that we're benefiting today is going to be much different than the individuals that are going to benefit tomorrow simply because of the changing economy. And that's always the crux, right? It's it's that we the government is trying to keep up with things but they never do. Keep up with everything the way that we probably need to be keeping up with things. And there's been numerous administrations that have talked about free college for all, but that has never happened, unlike what we sometimes see in different other countries as well. So who knows if that will ever come? You know, and I think it's important to remember, though, like, again, we were touching on the community college. There are a lot of ways to get into college for free, especially on the community college level. There's a lot of ways to minimize your college expenses. The state school systems are amazing, you know, public things. And then there are free, I'd say tuition-free colleges in the United States. So if you're trying to put together that college application list, there's, I want to say about 30, 40 of them that are tuition-free colleges. Some of them are work colleges where you got to work, you got to do things, but those are out there. And I say tuition-free because you still might have to pay for room and board and books and things like that. But hey, if you can knock out that tuition, that might be a good thing as well. My eyes just got really big when I heard about tuition-free colleges. We'll have to take a look at that one and see if my daughter would even consider it. (laughs) So as you work with parents and talk to other people that are dealing with this, what are some of the other big takeaways and things that you really want someone to understand as they're working with their, let's say, high school senior as they prepare to not only apply to schools, but get ready to fill out the FAFSA and work toward that end of the senior year into the beginning of their college experience. So I think as you are starting to apply for schools or think about this, I really think that transparency is key. Hopefully, as you're raising your daughters and your kids in general, you're being open and transparent with them about your finances. But, you know, filling out the FAFSA for some is an eye opener that I have to share what, where I have to fill out all this income and assets and different things. And I know that there's families that are surprised by that. But I think having open, honest conversations about this is what we've saved. 
This is what we've earned. This is what we're able to afford for you to go to school. This is kind of what our expectation was for you. And having these conversations earlier, even as a, a freshman in high school, so that there's no surprises as this trajectory unfolds through their high school career. It says every family is different. Every family has different means. You know, yes, I'm sure there's some families out there that are blessed to just pay for the whole thing. But I don't think that's really the case for most Americans today. Most people are paying a part of it. They're having to borrow. They're putting this whole pie together, right? And I think the more transparent you as a family can be with each other about expectations, the easier it will be to start formulating that college application list, understanding the different financial aid options and what's going to be required to potentially go to some of these schools, right? And it also might build out the safety list in a better way. You know, maybe you, you will put a community college on there as a backup. Maybe they'll put a local state school with the option to live at home to save on costs or some variation of a theme. But, you know, as you put together this college application list of seven or so schools, schools, right? And you're looking at some safety schools and some stretch schools to what you want to get to. Having a really transparent understanding of the family's finances, the means, what's going to be paid by who goes a long way into formulating that. Part two is I like to really have the ROI conversation. And I know college is more than numbers. I do. It's got a social aspect and a growth aspect and things. But ROI is return on investment. And it is a monetary expense. No matter how you slice it, there is a monetary cost. And the goal is to potentially earn more after you graduate, right? You want to get into a career that you're able to earn in and, you know, ideally pay for any student loans you may have had to borrow or other things. But just like any other investment, if you pay too much, well, it could be a bad investment for you, right? And so the goal is to, you know, pay enough so that you can get a nice return on your investment after college. I kind of view it like a car, right? Like college is this vehicle that gets you into your future career, your future life, your future earnings, things like that. If you can afford to buy a luxury car, you want to go out and buy the nice Mercedes and you can you can write the check for it, well, go for it, right? But on the flip side, if you can't and you're needing to get a car loan or you need to borrow for college, well, maybe you should really look at the used higher mileage vehicle that can at least get you to and from college so that you can get to that higher earnings and not be saddled with debt and burdened with it. So, you know, while I don't want to dismiss living in cool dorms and going on, you know, these amazing pools and facilities that these colleges are building, I want you to look at the whole cost picture and really look at the ROI and see if you're going to spend too much, not enough. Could you spend a little more depending on your choices and your means? Because the worst thing I want to see is families that spend way too much. And then this poor child is now a young adult and struggling to pay for what they did when they were 17, 18, 19 years old. Well, I think this is all just a starting point because there's so much information that I know we could we could stay here for hours talking about this topic and that's why there's so many books out there that have been that have been written about this. So I guess one final question, I want to go back to the conversation you had about scholarships because there are a ton of websites out there saying Come here and, and search our free scholarship engine. And we'll, you know, there's all these scholarships. I, I would tell anyone, never pay for, for finding scholarships. Never do that. But what would you say in regards to if someone is looking for a place to start 
in finding some of those scholarships that you were talking about, what are some of the ones that you recommend? So honestly, I say start with your network. So whether it is an organization you're a part of, a volunteer organization, your parents, employers, a church group, a trade union, things that are local to you and start there because a lot of large companies, I don't know if your parents work for a larger company, they might have scholarships for their students or for their other children of their employees, local organizations, volunteer groups. There's a lot of that community ones. Go to your high school guidance counselor. This is what they do. <laughs> they, a lot of high schools have great lists of scholarships, not only in their community, but also competitive ones nationally that they've seen success with their prior year students and different things. So go in there and I would be shocked if they didn't have an amazing curated list of scholarships for you. Then, I mean, go to Google. So I'll share this for you too. We run a scholarship on the College Investor called the Side Hustling Student Scholarship. And we want to reward entrepreneurial students every year. We do, uh, this is our sixth year doing it now. We give $2,500. And what we ask is that you write an essay of a thousand words about how you're being entrepreneurial in school, whatever that is. And we get amazing stories. I had one like a year ago, this girl was singing the national anthem in her hometown baseball games and rodeos and things. And she was making like $500 each appearance. And like, it was amazing. And I love these stories, which is why we do it. But I will tell you, when you go to apply for scholarships, once you find them, follow the directions. I'm begging you. So a lot of people think scholarships are not competitive. They are, you know, there's no chance that I'm going to get this. Well, Typically, we get about 100 applications to our scholarship. And I will tell you, on the first day it closes, we delete 80 of them because they did not follow the directions. The word count was there. They'll send us a Google Doc that we can't open. Like, random things. It's like, could you not follow the directions? That You know, they'll write like a, a one-paragraph little thing that's like 50 words. It says, like, I am an entrepreneurial student. And that's their essay. And I'm like, why would you even waste your time doing this? So when it comes down to it, the crux is you have like a 1 in 20 chance of winning the scholarship. And I've spoken to a lot of other people and organizations that run scholarships. And it is the same thing across the board. I would tell you that about 70 to 80% of all scholarship entries for every scholarship gets disqualified for simply not following the directions. So you have a shot. You got to do the work to find them. It is a little bit of work. You got to go talk to your guidance counselor. You got to go search online. You got to go look at local organizations that your family is a part of and you're a part of. But once you find them, if you put in the work, you spend the time and make sure you dot all your I's and cross your T's and fill it all out properly, you have a really good shot at actually getting that free money. Well, I appreciate you sharing all of this and we'll definitely make sure that individuals know where to find you. But I always finish our interviews with what I like to call our Fatherhood Five, where I ask you five questions to delve a little bit deeper into you as a dad. Are you ready? Oh yeah, let's do this. In one word, what is fatherhood? Adventure. Now, when was the time that you finally felt like you succeeded in being a father to a daughter? I'd say the most recent one is when she wanted to ride her bike without training wheels, begged me to take them off, and then just did it. And it was very impressive. <laughs> now, how would your kids describe you as a dad? Probably nerdy. Who inspires you to be a better dad? My wife probably is the biggest inspiration for me to be the best dad possible. <laughs> Now, you've given a lot of piece of advice today in regards to thinking about college and preparing for college. But as you think about fathers in general, dads in general, what advice would you give to other dads? 
honestly be present. And this is a challenge that I struggle with, especially with social media and this day and age and you got your phone and everything. But honestly, our kids just want us to be present with them. And so it's like, how do you put the phone in a drawer and just play with them, be present, even if they just want to talk to you about their Barbies or whatever it is, (laughs) just go be present with them. It's super important and you'll have a lot of fun doing it as well. Completely agree with you there. One of the first things I would tell any father is get on the floor, especially when your kids are young, play with them, even if it's not something that you want to do. Just be there, take the time, and as you said, be present because that time is going to be fleeting. And before you know it, they're going to be 17 and looking at the end of their high school career. Now, if people want to find you, where's the best place for them to find you? Yeah, you can find me and all of our information at thecollegeinvestor.com. We also have our YouTube channel, The College Investor, and a podcast, The College Investor Audio Show. So however you like to enjoy your content, we're there somewhere. Well, I just want to say thank you. Thank you so much for what you're doing to help other fathers, other parents, and I wish you all the best. Thank you for having me. This has been a great conversation. The Fatherhood Insider is the essential resource for any dad that wants to be the best dad that he can be. We know that no child comes with an instruction manual, and most dads are figuring it out as they go along. And the Fatherhood Insider is full of resources and information that will up your game on fatherhood. Through our extensive course library, interactive forum, step-by-step roadmaps, and more, you will engage and learn with experts, but more importantly, dads like you. So check it out at fatheringtogether.org. If you are a father of a daughter and have not yet joined the Dads with Daughters Facebook community, there's a link in the notes today. Dads with Daughters is a program of Fathering Together. Find out more at fatheringtogether.org. We look forward to having you back for another great guest next week, all geared to helping you raise strong, empowered daughters and be the best dad that you can be. We're all in the same boat. And it's full of tiny screaming passengers We spend the time We give the lessons We make the meals We buy them presents Bring your A-game Cause those kids are growing fast The time goes by just like a dynamite blast Calling astronauts and firemen, carpenters and muscle men Get out and be the world to them Be the best dad you can be Be the best dad you can be